0: As as Tim said, um, my name's Paul, I'm one of the leaders here, and um, I'm going to be carrying on our our series in Philippians. You remember we've been looking at the book of Philippians, this church that um, Paul established with sort of three different types of evangelism, where he reached out to Lydia, and she and all her family came to know God, and they were baptised and then there was a slave girl who was possessed by a demon and Paul cast out the demon and then she joined the church such as it was and then finally there was a, because of what Paul had done casting out the demon he'd been thrown into prison and God shook the prison walls broke down the doors but rather than escaping Paul and Silas stayed where they were because that is obviously what God had told them to do. And because they did that, they basically saved the jailer's life. He was going to kill himself because he thought his prisoners had escaped and he was going to be executed. And he was so grateful that they had saved his life effectively by not running away. They listened to what they had to say, and he and all his family, all his household were converted. And that birthed the church. But that church, just from the small kind of about a dozen people, maybe less, had grown into a really big church and was doing really well. And Paul was in prison in Rome, but he loved the Philippian church. You know, he'd been there, he'd birthed it, he'd seen it grow, he'd heard great reports about it, and so he wrote this letter to them. And in the past few weeks, we've been looking, looking at it chapter by chapter. You remember that Tim spoke first of all on Philippians 1. But having a passion for the gospel and having compassion for people. And then Dave Gawler talked about partnering together for the gospel and humbling ourselves, putting the interests of others before ourselves and how we work together on the mission of carrying the gospel. And then Tim last week spoke about how the message is the gospel plus nothing. It is only the gospel of Christ that we need. And I'm going to I'm gonna pick up in a minute from where from there and carry on. But you know, we've talked in a lot of that I've talked about, you know, passion for the gospel, partnering for the gospel, the gospel plus nothing. And what I just thought i do, I know you all probably know this, but I just wanted to do a little refresher on what do we mean by the gospel? What is this message? Karl Barth was um, a Swiss theologian. He was probably the most influential, considered to be certainly in Protestant circles, the most influential theologian of the 20th century. He was a, a great intellectual man and, and he gave um, a talk or a, a, a debate one day, and afterwards, and there were students and people listening there, and afterwards, he, was, he did a question and answer session, a bit like we've done today. And someone, one of the students came up with a question and said, Dr. Bart, you know, from all your vast knowledge, what is, what is the most important and profound insight you've had into the message of Christianity from what you have learned? And Dr. Bart said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. this this great intellectual man who understood things in a way beyond the level that most of us would understand, who was hugely influential on the development of Protestant Christianity throughout the 20th century. But it was that message that he was loved, and he could be sure of it because of what the Bible said. That was what he considered to be the most profound insight he had. And about 400 years before that, John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace and a couple of other really famous hymns, <coughs> he was getting old and he wrote and he said, although my, I'm getting old and I, my memory is fading and I have forgotten many things, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. And that is the message of the gospel, that we who are great sinners have been rescued by a great saviour. And one of the biggest problems that we have today in 21st century Britain and the West, we're delivering that message is that nobody wants to believe that they are a great sinner. Everybody has wants to set their own standards. And their standard for what a bad person is, is never who they are. Although, actually, conversely, very often, the things that annoy us most about other people are the things that are most like us. But we always know why we are like that. We always know our justification. Yeah. I, I cut that man up at the roundabout because I knew I had somewhere important to go. But when five minutes later at the next roundabout someone else does it to me, that is a heinous crime. That is appalling. Because they, I still have my important place to go. And now they've made it more difficult for me. Yeah. I, I think that these big companies, the problem we have with the big companies, they don't pay enough taxes. But you know, well, I. Did a little cash in hand job the other day, but 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 you know, but I'm just a small person. And that's not important. It was only a tiny thing, and it doesn't really matter. And well, no, no one will ever know, will they? And I never got caught. Yeah, we we are so quick to condemn the sin in others, but we never like to condemn the sin in ourselves because we always know that we're a good person, really. But the Bible says we are not a good person, really. We are all profoundly affected by the effects of sin. And, you know, this this week, we've celebrated the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And And we can look with horror on what took place there. We can be appalled at what happened, and rightly so. There is... But you know, not all Germans were evil people. There is nothing to say that the German people are any more corrupt than we are. And you know, I have no doubt that many of the people, the architects of Auschwitz, the people that put it into place, maybe many of the guards, were profoundly evil people. But you know what? There were plenty of people there that were just like you and me that were just doing their job, that had been convinced that their job was to murder millions of Jews and that that was a good thing. And they were not, there was nothing corrupt about their nature that is not in our nature. They were no more susceptible than we are to lies. They just happened to have been told a bigger and a greater lie. And they fell for it, but we could just as easily... We have the same elements in us as they had in them. So, the message of the gospel is that we are all great sinners. We are all capable of great evil. We all indeed have great evil in us and do fall amazingly short of the perfection that Jesus taught us was the way. But that God, in his great mercy, took mercy upon our poor, fallen, helpless, sinful selves and chose to come and die in the form of Jesus Christ that we might be saved. And that is the message of the gospel that we carry to the world. And I'm sure most of you know that, probably All of you sat in this room know that. But if you don't, if you've never responded to that, if that message has never gone deep into your heart and you have felt profound need of the salvation of Jesus, then I would appeal to you today to ask Jesus, to ask God to show you the truth of that message and to change your heart. And if you ask him today and he doesn't answer today, then ask him tomorrow and the day after until your heart is changed and you have received him and you know with certainty that you have been adopted into his family and that you are a child of God. So, turning now to the book of Philippians. Philippians 4, one actually starts with therefore and In that great preacher's cliche, when you see the word therefore, you must always ask, what is it there for? (laughs) And therefore, go back to the paragraph before to see what it's there for. So, I'm actually going to start at Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. If you've got it in your Bible. So, dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things. And they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our saviour. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. Using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and I long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now I appeal to you, Odia and Sinchi, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news of the gospel. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Always be joyful in the Lord. Again, I say it, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. For remember, the Lord is coming soon. I just want to stop there. And so, this is, um, I believe that this chapter, this passage gives us three keys to living a contented Christian life. And the first one is this Paul writes, We are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as saviour. And then in verse four, chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do, for remember the Lord is coming soon. And Paul wants us to understand that every day we live this day in the light of that day. That there is a day coming when Christ will return. When we who are in Christ will rise to meet him in the air. When the graves will open up and those who have died in Christ will ascend up and meet Christ as he returns to claim his bride on the earth. When a new, when heaven will descend to earth and heaven and earth will be united. And we are to live each day in the light, that that day is coming. And we do not know what day that will be. Dwight L. Moody, the famous American revivalist and preacher of the late 19th century, wrote, I never preached a sermon without thinking that possibly the Lord will come again before I get to preach another." And this was a man who would sometimes preach several times a day, certainly several times a week. He preached everything as if it might be the last sermon he ever preached because he didn't know if he would ever get another chance to make an appeal to people, to change their hearts, to come to Christ. He didn't know if those people who were sat before him would ever again get that opportunity to respond to the gospel. And so he preached heart and soul in the light of that. Billy Graham says, if we could live every day as though it may be the very last one before the final judgment, what a difference that would make here on earth. We don't like to think that our carefully made plans and long-range schemes will be interrupted by the trumpet of God. Too many people would rather say, oh, well, the end of the world hasn't come yet. So why think about it? It's probably a thousand years away. And, you know, we're all guilty of living like that. I'm certainly guilty of living like that, you know. I know, well, I can plan what I'm going to eat for breakfast tomorrow. I can plan where I'm going to go on holiday next year. I'm saving up for a pension, and I've got plans for what I'm going to do then in 20 or 30 years' time. But, you know, God could interrupt any one of those plans. And it's not necessarily wrong to have plans, to think ahead, to be strategic. You know, if we didn't, you know, this morning... We've been trying to give you a bit of a vision for what our plans, the elders' plans for the church, what we're going to do next in Turlin And it's, it's good. If we didn't have plans, nothing would happen. We wouldn't work towards anything. We wouldn't achieve everything. But everything we do, we've got to do in the, fact, in the light of the fact that actually God might, ch- might have a completely different plan. He might come back before we even start the meal with a message, in which case it was a good plan. But it didn't actually achieve anything. But that's only because a greater thing has happened. And God's plans are greater. And we need to be, with all our plans, we need to hold it all lightly. Because God might have a completely different idea. We're not to live as if we have to make up all the plans and then just invite God along to just make it work. We are to... Live in the light of his plans. You know, as I said, part of the the birthing of the Philippian church was that God sent an earthquake to break open the, the prison doors so that Paul and Silas could escape. Now, a few years before that, Peter had been in prison and God sent an earthquake And Peter got up and walked out and went to where the prayer meeting was and knocked on the door and everyone thought he was a ghost because no one believed he was there because he was locked up in prison. And that was God's plan. God sent an earthquake to break open that prison to get Peter out so he could walk out and go. But when he does almost exactly the same thing with Paul and Silas, the plan is stay put and wait for the jailer to come and get you out. You know, God can do something one way, And he wants us to do one thing. And he can do almost exactly the same looking thing later. But you do a different thing. Because he knows what he's doing. And he had a plan in it all. And it suited his plan for Peter to get up and walk out. And it suited his plan for Paul and Silas to stay put. So we need to live every day in the light of the Lord's return. Knowing that every conversation we have might be the last time. Knowing that every plan we have might get swept away. Knowing that whatever happens, that there is a day coming when everything will change. Knowing that every wrong that is done to us will be put right. Knowing that every ache and pain in our body will be taken away. As we receive our new bodies. Knowing that we are waking every morning. With that morning as a gift. Not knowing if we will reach the end of the day. But only knowing that we've been given this time. And we're to use it for the Lord. And because of that it changes our attitude to our priorities. And what is important. Paul is writing to writes to these two ladies, Euodia and Sinchi, and we have no idea who they are. We have no idea what their disagreement is. We only know that they had a disagreement. And it seems to me maybe this is a slightly strange thing, and this is something that I like about the Bible. It's warts and all. You know, if you're writing, if you're writing a a theology book, or you were trying to write something that was encouraging people to to believe in your new church that you were birthing, wouldn't you say what a wonderful place it was and how good it is and talk about how, how fantastic... But this isn't... Paul wasn't writing a theology book. He wasn't writing an advert to try and attract people to the church. He was writing a letter to people that he knew, to a church that he knew and loved, that he cared for. It came out of relationship because Christianity is out of relationship. And it might have been that the editors, when the Bible was being put together at the Council of Nicene, you might think actually that they might want to take some of these bits out. You know, there was a bit earlier in the previous chapter where Paul is calling people dogs. He talks. At the end of chapter three, about people who are the enemies of the cross of Christ, and, you know, he's—he's he's not a gentle pastor, Paul. You know, that wasn't his gift. And now he's talking to these two ladies about a disagreement. Like I said, we don't know what a disagreement is, but we know that in that Philippian church, in that early church, that church that had been birthed out of Paul's personal ministry, that two ladies, who he says were. People who worked hard with him, telling others about the gospel. They were co-workers with him and Clement, and their names are written in the book of life. So these, these are real, proper Christians. These are not people on the periphery. These are not people they know. These are some of the core people that have built this church, and they're having a disagreement about something. And we don't know what it is, in my opinion. Personal disagreement, you know, they might have fallen out over something because people can. It might have been a political disagreement of some sort, you know, they might have different views on it. It could have been a theological disagreement, something about how the church is being run. I think we should be doing this. No, I think we should be doing that. Or, no, I think Jesus meant this, but no, I think Jesus meant that. And, you know, how many churches have split because people? fall out over things and don't get on and they rub each other up the wrong way and, and everything gets very heated and so one group of people says no I'm going I'm not going to meet with you anymore I'm going to meet over here and I'm going to meet over here and sometimes there are good reasons for that you know there are good disagreements sometimes you know sin comes into the church there is poor leadership there are good reasons why you have to actually you know I love you, but the message you are bringing, the way you are living your life, is such that actually I can no longer partner with you. I have to move away. But this clearly was not that kind of disagreement, because Paul's message to these two ladies is to reconcile, to come together, because... The gospel is more important. And that is his message to them. Because Jesus is going to be coming back at some point. And he doesn't want to find the church squabbling. And you know, so much of what Christians can do is we can end up spending so much of our time fighting with each other that we're not, we're forgetting to be taking the message of reconciliation. The great reconciliation of the sinless God with sinful people. The greatest reconciliation of all we're so bothered, we're so bothered with our petty disagreements that we can that we forget to bring the message and we forget to live out the message and we forget that sometimes we need to just put those things aside you know it doesn't matter whether on thursday you stayed up to 11 o'clock to wave your union jack and ring the bells and celebrate or whether you woke up on Friday morning in a fog of disappointment and dejection, that doesn't matter. What matters is the gospel. What matters is showing people, telling people about the good news of what Jesus has done, and we can put the petty disagreements behind us. So, Paul, then, moving on, then um, resuming it, Philippians chapter four, verse six. Paul writes, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which passes all understanding. His peace will guide your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right. And pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into, pra- putting into practice what you learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. You know, this is, as I said, this is a, a pastoral letter from Paul to this church, and he's trying to give them advice. So he's talked about living in the light of the coming day, the return of Christ. And now he's giving them another practical insight that they are, that you go into everything rejoicing in what Christ has done. You know, that doesn't mean that we have to be some kind of deluded, always happy people. It doesn't mean that when you're having a really bad day and someone says to you, How's your day going? You have to say, everything's wonderful. Because everything isn't always wonderful. There are horrible things that happen in this world. There is deep sadness. But it means that in every situation we remember the good news of the gospel. The good news that Christ has died for us. The message that everything works together for those who love the Lord Christ Jesus. That there is no condemnation for those who follow and love him. That is our great consolation in times of trouble. That we have a God who is the almighty creator of heaven and earth. But who loves us and who's died from us. And if our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, then that is our great consolation in everything that is to come. So that is how we rejoice. Not because everything is going well in our lives, because everything might not be going well in our lives. And we're not promised that everything will go well in our lives. And, and you know, I think there is a problem that certain. Christian teachers will teach you that everything should be going well in your life. That you are promised wealth and health and happiness. And God wants the best for you. He is your loving Father. He desires good for you. But he does not promise that in this life you will receive only happiness and wealth and blessing. In fact, going back to... um, Chapter 3, when, when Paul is talking about the enemies of the cross of Christ, he talks, says that yeah, their God is their appetite. They, they brag about shameful things, and they think only about life here on earth. You know, if a Christian minister only offers you a good life on this earth, then what he's offering you is something fake and counterfeit and worthless. Because... This life is important, but it is of tiny importance compared to the life to come. And that is where we are to, Jesus told us, store up your treasure in heaven, where the thief does not steal and, and the moth does not eat and corrupt it. You know, we are, we are to live for heaven and not just for this life. thats not That doesn't mean we can't, seek things in this life as well, because Paul says, you know, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything, tell God what you need, and thank him for all he has done. So he's not saying, don't ask, you know, don't say, I need money, because if you need money, you need money. Don't say, I want health, because it's good to want health. It's good to want to be strong and healthy. But, you know, as Lucy actually shared this morning, you know, dance doesn't it doesn't have health, good health doesn't have to be the be-all and end-all. God can work amazing things through people who are suffering in their health. I, I, my um, my Bible readings I'm doing at the moment every morning um, are from uh, by Billy Graham, and actually the reading I did this morning was about ill health. And he said sometimes when you're sick on your bed, that's when you feel God closest to you because He's the one there with you putting his arm around you. Sometimes a gardener prunes back not just the dead branches, but also prunes back some of the healthy ones to make them grow stronger because the gardener knows the shape the bush should be in and he knows what is best for the plant and it might be hurtful and painful, but the gardener knows best. So Paul says, don't worry about everything. Ask God, say to God, this situ- I don't like this situation. I want it to change. But trust him that he will provide what you need, that he will give you strength for the day and bright hope for tomorrow. And thank him for all he has done because actually we have a great many things to be thankful for in our lives. And actually if you, you, can, if you can go to God with all your problems, But then if you go with the problems, but then remember all the good things he's done and how faithful he is, and and look on those, it it can change your attitude of your heart. And it means that you you get peace because you know the God you're going to is a God who has answered your prayers in the past. And he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever. And Paul says to think your. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honourable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about the good things and not focus on evil things and bad things. You know, I, um, in order to try to keep my heart strong for longer and to try and fight middle-age spread and so that I don't feel too guilty about all the chocolates and cakes I eat all the time, I, I jog three times a week. Um... And usually, when I'm doing that, I listen to music that is probably quite unsuitable, really. But it gives me the oomph I need to keep going. Uh, and sometimes I have to stop and think, no, this track is just one too far. I've got to skip this one. But you know, but this week, um, I've been, I've put on worship music while I've been running. And you know what? I don't run nearly as well when I'm listening to worship music. This week, I've been running shorter distances. I've been running worse times. I've been having to stop and walk. But you know what? When I've got back home, my soul feels so much better than it did before. (laughs) And I think that's partly what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there you could think about. There are a lot of things you could worry about. There's a lot of evil going on. And you can fill your mind with evil. And, you know, I, I... I'm aware sometimes. Sometimes I'll I'll watch a film or I'll listen to a or a documentary on TV or I'll listen to something, and you know, and I'll, and I'll get to the end of it and I will think, oh, do you know what? I feel a bit dirty after that. Or you know, oh, I didn't realize it was gonna be like that. There is so much bad stuff out there in the world. It's hard to find good stuff sometimes. And actually, it's much better. Paul says much better. Think about the good stuff. Think about God and what He has done. Then you'll feel happier. Then you'll feel better. And then finally, um, Paul moves on to practical advice about money and things like that. So in verse chapter four, verse ten, he says, "How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again! I know that you have always been concerned for me." but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then travelled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I'm generously supplied with the gift you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who cares about me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. And you know, Paul there is talking about attitude to money, attitude to goods. He's thanking them for their gift. He appreciates their gift. But he's appreciating their gift not so much because it's helped him, but he sees it as having helped them. They have made a sweet-smelling sacrifice. They've done a good thing, and they will be rewarded by Christ for doing that. Because they've chosen to take what they had and to go without so that he could have. And he says that he has learned what it is to live on everything and nothing. Because actually, both great wealth and great poverty are dangerous. Plenty and affluence is as much a challenge to face as lack. When we were in adversity, we risk faithlessness and unbelief. We can think, you know, I'm ill or I've got, I don't have enough money, I'm hungry. God's let me down. He's not coming through. Is he really on my side? Is there really even a God at all? But in prosperity, we risk being boastful and proud. Look look at my nice car. Look at my nice house. Look what I have done. Or even, in Christ- look how much God has blessed me. I must be doing something really good. When we're in danger, or or have a shortfall, we can risk fear and doubt. You can wake up every morning thinking, am I going to have enough? To, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to have enough money for today. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. And you can be crippled by fear, and by doubt, and by worry all the time. And you know, Paul has proved, you know, don't worry. Bring everything to God. But in security, we can feel self-sufficient. We can get up every morning and not say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Because we know our daily bread we bought last week and it's still sat in the cupboard and we've got five loaves in the freezer. So we don't need to worry about whether the daily bread is coming today because we stocked up well and we know that we're going to get paid next week so we can stock up again. Yeah. Both of those are traps. you know. Rudyard Kipling said in his poem, "If you know, If you can face... Success and failure and treat those impostors both the same. You know, neither success nor failure. Neither a great deal or very little. It's necessarily a reflection of how God feels about you. And Paul has learnt that. And Paul says to the Philippians that, he's, that he is happy that they have gifted him because they will receive the blessing for it. To the Corinthians... He writes about being a cheerful giver. He says, you must decide in your own heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Yeah. God doesn't look about at the amount that you have. He doesn't look at the amount that you give. He looks at your heart. And are you willing to put him first? And are you willing to listen to what he tells you to do? And follow what he tells you? Or are you making up your own rules? Are you thinking, ah, well, you know, if I do this, God will love me. If I give to this charity, God will love me more. And that will cancel out some of the bad stuff I've done. So I don't need to worry about that. You know? We, we, set our own, we can set our own rules with God. And when, um, when Samuel tells Saul, as he goes to defeat the Amalekites, I think Amalekites or Amorites, one of them, anyway, um, he says, God has said, kill every person, destroy every animal, burn down every house. And Saul wins gr- an, a great victory. And he kills most of the animals and most of the people. But the king, he thinks, you know, he's a king, I'm a king. I'm not sure it's a really good idea to let my soldiers go around killing kings. Might get the wrong idea. Um, and because kings are quite important people. So we'll, we'll take him captive and then we can show him off to people, show him how great our victory is. Because look at this, this king, and I'm a much greater king than him because he's bowing to me. And, and maybe we can ransom the king because he's worth a bit of money. And, and well, there are these really nice sheep and cows here. So it would be a shame to just kill those. But I can take them to the temple. The tabernacle, I can sacrifice them to God. God will be really happy when I sacrifice them to God. And God sent Samuel to go to him and said, Saul, your kingdom is taken away from you. You have failed completely. And Saul's like, but, but I thought I was doing it. I said, you know, you were told, kill them all. And you didn't do it. You're not going to listen to God. And if you're not going to listen to God, you're finished. You're done. And you know, we have to listen to God and do what he tells us to do with what he gives us. So, in conclusion, the three keys to successful Christian living are four, actually. (laughs) Have faith in the gospel. It has been carried successfully by generations for 2000 years and it has saved such as you have faith that god will continue and do what he is doing live your life in the light of his return you don't know how many chances you might have or that the people you're talking to might get don't waste the precious time live your life as an example to others paul says if you want to know what to do, copy me and copy the people who are like me and bring my message. You know, we are to live lives that show people what they should be living like. Don't worry and trust him. And remember, it's only money. It's not anything important. So I'm going to conclude now just in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the message we have learnt through your through Paul's letter to the Philippians, we thank you for the inspiration you gave him. And we thank you that that message is as true today as it was then, and it will remain true until you return again. Help us to live in the light of your imminent return, and to follow you wherever you would lead us. Amen.